Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Let's read these verses and then ask the Lord for his blessing. And let us always remember, as we try to do each week, that this is the word of the living God. And we don't come to it lightly, we come with reverence and awe. Lord, bless your word to your people. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Amen. Father, again, we ask that you would um, anoint each of us, Father, with your spirit this morning to hear the word of God and to respond in faith and obedience, and that our joy would be full as we hear about you and your wonderful work. We thank you for your word and for your spirit who attends your word with great power. Bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you were with us last time, we were um, still looking at the same verses, Romans 28 and 30. We've been in this particular section for a few weeks now. We were looking last time at the purpose of God in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We saw that that is the chief purpose of God, a purpose that he has planned in his mind from eternity, that all of his children would be brought to this destination, that they would be conformed to the image of his Son. That is, that they would be made like him in every respect, like him in character, like him in life, like him ultimately in a resurrected body at the last day. And we saw that the other purpose or related to that purpose and really even more significant than our being conformed to the image of Christ is that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is to say that he would be the preeminent one, that he would be the captain of our salvation and the mold after which every child, every brother of Jesus Christ is patterned. That is the great honor that is accorded to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be chief among all and that all his would look just like him. That is the great purpose of God. That is the great good for which God is causing all things to synergize together in verse 28 to those who specifically love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Today we want to look at the other side of the purpose of God or the the. Um, what is meant by the exposition of verse 30 being the certainty of that purpose. So Paul is calling us to not only know what the purpose of God is, but to believe that the purpose is absolutely certain because it is. This is really what the golden chain represents. The golden chain is comprised of a series of links, five links or truths, that are taken together to represent the certainty of the purpose. One ch uh, link in the chain leads to the next of necessity, and the first, chain, the first link excuse me, will make it all the way to the last link. They're all connected together. This is also known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. That is that the saints, everyone will persevere, will endure the sufferings and trials and temptations of this life to make it all the way to the end when Jesus Christ returns to glorify his people with himself. 
J.C. Ryle, a pastor in the Anglican Church in the 19th century, said this regarding this doctrine of perseverance. He said, I hold it, that is perseverance, to be one of the chief privileges of the children of God. This doctrine is a privilege for us to receive through revelation. He also called it the brightest jewel of the gospel crown. The gospel has many jewels. This is the brightest or one of the brightest in the gospel crown. So it behooves us to give our attention to this. George Whitfield, the, the famous revivalist of the 18th century, said, Oh, the excellency of the doctrine of election and of the saints' final perseverance. I am persuaded till a man comes to believe and feel these important truths, he cannot come to himself. But when convinced of these and assured of their application to his own heart, he then walks by faith indeed. Love, not fear, constrains him to obedience. And that is exactly where the Lord wants to bring all of us as he teaches us his word to a place of walking in faith indeed, rejoicing in the Lord, not fearful because, as you remember, at the very beginning of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and to constrain us to obedience, a life of obedience, a pattern of obedience. This doctrine of perseverance is not what we would call a salvation issue. It is, that is to say, the person who doesn't understand the doctrines of, doctrine of perseverance or even believe it doesn't deny the faith. It doesn't mean that they don't have genuine faith. But again, this is one of the pearls of the faith that we are meant to know and embrace because, quite frankly, if we don't know or believe this doctrine, we are robbing ourselves of the joy of the Lord that He means for all of us to have. We are robbing our souls of the joy that He intends for us. And secondly, and I would say even more importantly, we are robbing the Lord of the glory that is due His name. The Lord is instructing us as to what He has done for us. And to deny that is to deny the work of the Lord, and that is a, an affront to God. And so we never want to be in that position. We want to be in the position of receiving and accepting and loving the truth. So while not a salvation issue, it is still a very important issue. Important enough for the Lord to take a few verses to really synthesize this doctrine, which I hope to show you as well, is really replete throughout the whole of Scripture. If you deny the doctrine of perseverance, what you do is you create a position where assurance of salvation is not possible. It doesn't mean that you're not saved, but it does mean that you may not know that you're saved. There's a difference. The Lord is sovereign in salvation. He saves whom He will. But He means for His people to know that they are saved, to have assurance and confidence in Him because it causes His people to rejoice to glorify the Lord, to heighten their worship of Him. And that is really the point of everything. Those who deny this doctrine, sadly, put themselves in the same position as all of the man-centered religions of the world. What I mean by that is this. All, and, and, and even those who deny this doctrine of perseverance, can recognize and affirm that Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross, that his death was for me, for them, and that we were saved by that. But the confusion is, now what happens as we continue to walk in the Christian life? Is the responsibility ultimately mine to keep myself saved? Or is that something that the Lord does for his people using means by which we continue along the path that he intends for us? Those who believe that you must keep yourself saved by believing and by obeying and by one's own performance, how is your position any different from that of works righteousness in total? 
in the end, the, the result is the same. One never knows if he's done enough, if he's performed well enough to achieve that ultimate salvation. And so, true security is never possible because one's performance always fluctuates. As Ryle said again concerning this doctrine, just to illustrate the, the, really the absurdity of that position, is to say, today I walk in the land of Canaan, but maybe tomorrow I'm back in the land of Egypt, enslaved in bondage again. It is to say that this week I walk on the narrow road, but next week I'm back on the broad path that leads to destruction. It is to say, this month I am justified, I am forgiven and pardoned, but next month I am under condemnation and wrath yet again. Or perhaps this year I am a child of God and next year I am a child of the devil again. And the question that Pastor Ryle asks is this, where is the good news in all of that? Where is the gospel in all of that? That's not good news, that's terrible news. What becomes of the glad tidings, Ryle goes on to say, verily such doctrine seems to me to cut up the joy of the gospel by the roots. Yet this is the doctrine we must hold if we reject to the final perseverance of the saints, end quote. You see, the truth of Scripture is that God is only pleased with himself. He's only pleased with his work. And he's only pleased with his work in his people. That's the truth. To keep us in a state of constant suspense as to whether or not we will remain saved and reach the end is really to engender a spirit of fear in his people, is it not? And that runs directly contrary to what the Scripture teaches, that our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So anytime you or anyone holds to a position where the result of that position is a spirit of fear, you need to examine that and see if it aligns with the rest of Scripture. And if it does not, then discard it and seek the Lord and His Word because His truth will always set you free. Lies will always bring you back into bondage and slavery. But the truth sets free. No, the Lord Jesus Christ wants all of us to abide in His love. His eternal love, which has no beginning and therefore no end. Jesus said in the upper room in John 15, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That's the purpose of the instruction throughout Scripture, of the Word of God as a whole, is so that we might have the joy of Jesus Christ and that it might come to fullness. Fullness, so that we would worship Him in fullness. So with that background, let's look together at the certainty of His purpose in verse 30. And so the general heading today is the certainty of the purpose. And then within that overall heading, I just have three points which follow the text. Calling, justification, and glorification. Those are the last three links of the chain, of the golden chain. So let's start with calling which is link number three in the overall series. First, we have foreknowledge from verse 29, whom he foreknew. Here's the second link, he also predestined. Now come down to verse 30, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. I just need to give you a little bit on the mechanics of the verse before we get into it too far. The, there's two things I want you to notice about how the structure of this verse 30 is laid out. The first is this. The thrust of this verse is the linked nature of each phrase. Paul is connecting the group that he spoke of in 28, verse 28, that is, those who love God, with the same group that he mentions in verse 29, which is, whom he, God, foreknew and also predestined. You see how this is carried through, and then into verse 30, moreover whom he predestined. So now he's linking us up with the same group that he started in the first two links of the chain, and he's going to continue. And I want you to notice he uses a whom these, at least in the 
New King James, maybe in your Bible it's just whom and he, pairing, and he uses that three times in verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. In other words, everyone who is found in the first link is moved along to each subsequent link in the chain. Another way of thinking about that is to say there's no loss in the chain. This is a perfectly efficient system that God has created. There's no um, loss in terms of people. Everyone whom God foreknew is brought all the way through the chain to glorification. You know, as I was thinking about this idea, it occurs to me there's a parallel idea in the material universe that our Lord created that we know of. It's one of the laws that is described often in the study of physics, and it's within the category of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is the law of the conservation of energy. And that law basically says that Energy in a closed system must remain constant. It can neither increase nor decrease without interference from outside. In other words, there's a a certain amount, a finite amount of energy that has been put into a system, and that energy is, in the ultimate sense, neither created nor destroyed. It simply changes form from one type of energy to another. And we know of many types of energy. There's kinetic energy and mechanical energy and chemical energy, thermal energy, nuclear energy, electromagnetic energy. And all of those forms are constantly changing from one form to the other, but the sum total never changes. That's very interesting because I think that's exactly what the Lord is paralleling in the spiritual universe. In the same way that he designed conservation of energy, that there's no gain or loss in his material universe, he also designed a conservation of souls in his his spiritual universe. Not one will be left behind. Not one will fall through the cracks, so to speak. So first he emphasizes the continuity of this group of people moving through the chain. And secondly, I want you to notice Whose work Paul is emphasizing here? He is emphasizing the work of God. And I pointed this out previously, but notice he he uses the word he, the pronoun he, as the actor in verse 30 nine times. It is he who predestined, he who called, he who justified, he who glorified. Moreover, whom he predestined, that is, again, quickly, just those he marked out, those he made a selection among for a particular destination. And we know that destination, that purpose is that that group would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. These he also called. And as we saw previously, calling refers to the effectual call. That is how calling is used almost entirely exclusively in the New Testament. It's always used in that sense when writing to the church. It's not a general call, but an effective call. That is um, a a waking of those who are spiritually slumbering or dead, as the Scripture puts it. By the way, the word church in, in the Greek is the word ekklesia, and it's a compound, ek meaning out of, and then kaleo is to call. So it, it means to call out of. This call is a call of a person out of the world. It's a call out of the condition of spiritual death into life. That's what the church is. Everyone who is a part of the true church has been called by God from death to life. And from the way of this world, this evil world system, to his way, a way of righteousness and holiness. It's an inward call of God that comes not just to the ear, the external ear, but to the heart of the individual, a divine summons to spiritual life by God himself. And everyone he predestined in eternity, before time even existed, he calls with power to come to himself. So this transition in the chain, in the links, is from eternity, which is where foreknowledge, that that is that God set his love upon his people, 
and his predetermination, his marking out of his people, now comes to fruition in space and time where he calls each one of us effectively by his word and his spirit. He calls us to life that we would respond to his word. And I want you to notice something peculiar about the way in which Paul puts this calling. You would think that the way this would read or should read is those whom he foreknew and predestined, he will call. But he doesn't say that. That would be a a linear progression that would make sense to us who are people of time, who are bound by time and who think in a linear progression. But Paul uses the past tense here. He says, whom he predestined, he called. In fact, he does the same thing with each of these verbs. He justified, he glorified, he puts all of these in the past tense. And you might ask, why does he do that? That doesn't make sense, especially if there are those who haven't yet been called in space and time. They they have yet to be saved. Well, Paul in the Greek is using a particular tense, a a special tense that's called a proleptic aorist. Aorist is a tense you hear often, I think, from me because it refers to the past tense. But a proleptic aorist, or a, it's also called a futuristic aorist, which is kind of an oxymoron, right? He's saying something that refers to the future and the past at the same time, is a, a verb tense that describes, it's a way of talking about event, an event in the future as though it had already happened. It's a particular way of describing something that hasn't yet happened with such certainty as if it had already happened, because it is certain. Jesus, in John chapter 13, again in the upper room, there's an example of this where he said, and this is right when Judas went out to betray him, the Lord Jesus said, so when he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Not that the Son of Man, a reference to himself, will be glorified when he is raised from the dead, but now he is glorified. How can he say that? Because that action of Judas set in motion the rest of the course of events that would ultimately lead to that glorification when God would raise him victoriously from the dead. And so when Judas went out and betrayed him, That end of glorification for Jesus Christ was certain. It would happen. And in the same way, it is in this text in Romans chapter 8, whom he predestined, those he called. Everyone who is predestined will be called. And you just keep going and will be justified and will be glorified. See, the the truth here and the thing that's hard for us to get our minds around is that this has already happened, this meaning salvation, in the mind of God. We have to remember we're dealing with the eternal God who is not bound by space and time as we are. This golden chain for him is not really a chain at all. There's no sequence when there's no time. It really, I think, you could say, is all kind of compressed down to one point of singularity for the Lord, and it's all happened. Everything that he purposed has already taken place because he's purposed it in Christ, and it has taken place and will take place. There's no time for him. He will work out in time what he's already determined with his power and his wisdom in eternity. This is given as a sequence, as a chain for us, for our benefit so that we can see the particular components of his salvation and how it all hangs together perfectly. That's the point. Whom he predestined, these he also called. And the sense here is only those who are predestined are those who are called. Negatively, that means no one is able to come to Christ, to faith, to belief, to an understanding that saves, unless they've been divinely called. And we know that that's the testimony of Scripture everywhere. Ephesians chapter 2, You he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
You were spiritual corpses, and spiritual corpses have no ability to respond to the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised, spiritually understood. In other words, he has to have the Holy Spirit to interpret the Word of God correctly to him. Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity, literally hatred against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The problem is he's got a dead mind, and his mind in a natural state is at war with God. So why would he ever come to that God who calls him? Romans 3, verse 11, we learn that no one seeks after God. He's not even interested in what God has to offer because it calls him to account for his sin, which he doesn't want to do. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Draws him is just another way of saying called him. He must call him to himself. Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and this group is representative of the unbelievers of all unbelievers. He says, Why do you not understand my speech? In verse 43, Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. Ah, so the ability to hear the Lord is tied to one's nature. If your nature is evil because your father is the devil, which is the case for all of us who are naturally born in this world, sons of Adam and sons of the devil, We don't hear the word of Christ. Our nature has to change to hear the word of Christ. In John 8, 47, Jesus said, He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. They have a different nature. They're goats and not sheep. John 10, verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. These are astounding truths. Jeremiah points to the problem being in the heart of the sinner. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart which people trust in to guide them is a faulty compass. It will not lead you true north because of sin. And so the command of the Lord is this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, as Jeremiah says in chapter 4, verse 4. And take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Circumcise your heart. Wash your heart. And the question is, who can do this? Who can perform spiritual surgery on his own heart? Nobody. Thank God The Scripture teaches that Jesus and that the Lord performs this heart surgery on us. The Lord does this. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, Then I, the Lord speaking, will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. That's exactly why Paul told us back in Romans chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Here's the true Jew. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the Spirit, or by the Spirit of God, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see and understand and affirm and, and, and rejoice in this truth that no one is going to believe unless they are divinely called. One needs to be born again. That's the emphasis. We need a new nature. We, we need new life from God. We need the Holy Spirit of God to come and move on our hearts. In fact, to give us altogether new hearts, to take out these hearts of stone and give us new desires to seek God For the first time, God must act upon the sinner. He must call him. And notice what happens next in the sequence now. 
This is now link number four. Justification. Whom he called, these he also justified. Justified. And we've been through this, but it's always helpful to refresh on these terms and these truths. What is justification, brothers and sisters? And how does it happen? Well, we learned in Romans 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, that justification is a one-time legal act of God where he declares the sinner righteous, that is to say, to have a right standing with him based purely on his grace. Not of anything that is deserved or earned, but purely by his grace, his unmerited favor. And he does that by washing the sinner of his sin. He takes all of our sins and collectively puts them on the Messiah, his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did that at the cross 2,000 years ago and punished him as if he had personally committed every one of the sins we have all committed and will ever commit. And in exchange, he takes the righteousness, the perfect track record, the perfect life lived by Jesus Christ and gives it to us sinners as if we had lived Jesus' own life of perfection. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's our justification. That's what gives us right standing with God. And you and I didn't do a single thing to earn it or deserve it. In fact, the only thing that we've earned and deserved is his wrath, is eternal hell. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. And so we've learned in Romans 3, 4, and 5, justification is described in several terms, but they are common terms. For example, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, that is by his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So in all of these verses, we learned that it's really that we've been justified by grace through the instrument of faith, that is believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul gives another insight regarding the Holy Spirit who is even involved in our justification. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what are we saying? We're saying that it's by grace, God's unmerited favor, through an instrument called faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear the message of truth, through the operation of the Holy Spirit in all of our hearts, where he gives us a new heart that is able to believe. And you might say, well, see, we have a part to play. We have to believe. And that's true. We all must believe by faith. But brothers and sisters, even that faith to believe is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What is not of yourselves? Salvation through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He will not have anyone to boast in his presence because he is the author and finisher of salvation. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 reads, For to you it has been granted, this is a gift, on the behalf of Christ, notice this, not only to believe in him, that's faith, but also to suffer for his sake. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's why I believe that Paul in the golden chain is putting the emphasis on the he as he is. On the he. Whom he called these he also justified. In other words, God did it. He even justified you. Yes, he uses the means of faith so that you exercise it back toward him in belief. But even that is a gift from his own hand, apart from which you would never be able to believe. 
The Lord uses means. And this is really what resolves what seems to be a, a paradox when we read about the sovereignty of God, that he does so much, he does it all. And people say, well, but don't I have a part to play? Yes, you do. That's exactly determined by God as his means through which he accomplishes his eternal plan. You might remember uh, Paul when he was about to be shipwrecked in Acts chapter 27, that he instructed the centurion and the soldiers on board to tell all the people, stay in the boat. You cannot be saved unless you stay in the boat. And those who stayed in the boat were saved. You see, it was determined, it was purposed that they would be saved. That was the plan of God. But they had to obey the instruction. Stay in the boat. The boat, loved ones, is Jesus Christ. Get into him by faith and stay in the boat. Keep believing and you will be saved. But that work is his work in you, not your work on your own. So Paul, wonderfully, is really explaining to us, he's synthesizing for us in chapter 8 in this golden chain what he's been telling us all along about justification and putting a special emphasis on the Lord. This is his work. Give him the glory for it, even for your faith by which you believe. See, the reason anyone believes and is justified, whenever you read that term justified, think belief, faith, is because he was first effectually called. And you say, how do we know that? Well, we're just working backward in the chain. This is how the chain works. It works backward and it works forward. The reason that anyone is called to life is because they were predestined. The reason they were predestined is because they were foreknown, loved, eternally. Listen to Acts chapter 13, verse 48, which ties much of this together so beautifully. This is Paul when he was in Antioch and preaching to the Jews who um, had rejected the message and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so he said, okay, we're turning to the Gentiles. And he gave the message of of hope, of glad tidings to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews. That's just what Gentiles means. Acts 13, 48, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's an astonishing statement. As many as had been appointed, that is, predestined, elected, marked out for salvation, believed. The gospel came to them in power. God had brought them to life through the Holy Spirit and they heard the message and they embraced it and they rejoiced in it. Listen to how our Lord put it in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. He who believes in him who sent me, that's a, a present active participle. That means he who is in a state of believing, not just somebody who believed at one point in the past, not just somebody who responded to an altar call and came down and received the Lord, but one who continues to hear and believe in Jesus Christ that person has everlasting life. Not will have everlasting life, as we might expect, but has, as in already has everlasting life. See, the Lord is affirming for us, the only reason anyone believes is because he's alive to hear the message and to respond. Spiritually dead people do not respond to the truth. So, the point is, life always precedes belief, that is justification, Calling always comes first, then justification. And justification most certainly follows on true calling. You know, there are some who, when they are on the outside, I mean unbelievers, and they argue against Christianity, this doctrine of election and predestination comes up quite a bit. And their argument runs something like this. Well, what if I'm not one of God's elect? If I'm not one of God's elect then what's the point of following Jesus Christ? It's a, an exercise in futility because ultimately I, would, I won't be saved. See, that questioning alone is really the exercise in futility. 
And you say, why? Because there's no way to know if anyone is elect when he is an unbeliever. From the outside, looking forward, musing or considering the possibility, there's no way that you can know. This is a, it's like no, no one can climb up to heaven and peer into the Lamb's book of life and see his, his or her name written there. The Lord doesn't give that prerogative. This is a truth that is only understood retroactively or retrospectively in hindsight. Here's the test that the Lord gives us. Do you believe the gospel? Are you in a state of believing the gospel now? If you have believed and are believing, then you are justified and therefore you're predestined, you're elect. You wouldn't believe if you were not elect. Neither can anyone say with certainty, ah, the, this person is not believing right now, therefore they're not elect. Because the Lord may bring them to faith in the future. As long as there is breath in the person's lungs, there is opportunity, there is hope for salvation. And they may in fact be elect. Some of the most wicked people who have walked this planet for a time have turned out to be God's precious elect as part of his bride. The famous American Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, gave this illustration that I thought was really on point for this idea about election only being understood retrospectively. He said, imagine a large cross, a cross that Jesus would have been on. Imagine that it's so large that it has a door built into the cross. Over the door is a placard that has these words, whosoever come, come. Whosoever will come, come. Come freely. This is a, a gospel call that is given to all indiscriminately. Men, women, children, whoever will come to the Lord Jesus, enter there through that door. He is the door and his cross is the focus. But the wonderful truth is on the other side of the door, there's a nice surprise for those who have entered and look back. And they look above the door from the backside and on that placard is written the words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Which you can only read if you've entered. See? The point is election can only be understood in hindsight. It's after you've come to faith in Christ that anyone can know for sure that they have been elected by God. Another way of saying that is those who have made a decision for Christ will learn that Jesus has first made a decision for them in eternity. Now it's time for link number five. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, you don't have to be a theologian, but if you've been kind of tracking with the sequence of salvation, does it seem like Paul might be skipping something when he jumps from whom he justified, think faith in Christ, he also, these, he also glorified. That's a reference to final glorification. When all of us are transformed in body to look just like the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified body. There seems to be a bit of a jump there, Paul. Well, is he skipping what's called sanctification? And at first I thought he, he was, but as I reread the verses, if you look back at verse 29, he, he mentions sanctification there. That's the idea when he says that the purpose of God is that we all be conformed to the image of his Son. That's sanctification, becoming more and more like him. That's the backdrop against which all of this is set. His grand purpose is that all of us be conformed to Christ. That's the destination. That's the final glorification. That's the good. So he doesn't skip sanctification. It's definitely there. But you know, I think the reason Paul doesn't explicitly mention sanctification between justification and glorification is for a dramatic effect. It's that proleptic errorist again to say glorification is certain. It's so certain that as soon as you are justified, it's as if you have already been glorified. For we who are in Christ, our salvation is certain. 
it's so certain that it's stated in the past tense as though it had already happened. Now, is this a new concept in the book of Romans? No, I, I think as we are all seeing as we progress through this book, Paul is so good. He, he's like a, um, a Mozart or a great composer who hints at themes early in the piece and then he comes back to those themes and he, he develops them more fully so that we can appreciate them and enjoy them. And that's what he's been doing also with this concept of the perseverance of the saints. I mean, just come back with me for one moment to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 10. Here's a, a wonderful prefiguring of all that we're talking about in Romans 8. He says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be, li- we shall be saved, and my version says by his life, but the Greek says in his life. We shall be saved in his life. That is to say, if God has done the harder thing, which is that he has reconciled us by killing his son for us. Will he not do the lesser things with us, which is to save us in his very life? Well, what does that mean? Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we are all under grace now. We are no longer under sin. That is, we are no longer mastered and dominated and controlled by sin. We are under a state of grace so that we can obey Jesus Christ. And that grace is going to cause righteousness to reign in our lives as the new pattern all the way to eternal life. Starting now, all the way to eternity. He said the same thing in Romans 8, 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's not only going to be fulfilled at the last day when we are glorified. That is being fulfilled now as He gives life to our mortal bodies through our obedience to Him. An ability to say no to sin And yes to righteousness. That requires supernatural power, life, his life in us. So it's the same theme that he has been talking about again and again. This glory in chapter 8, verse 18, which shall be revealed in us. It's spoken with certainty. In other words, there's no possibility that if you are one of God's elect, that you will not be justified and ultimately glorified. I want to just give you a sampling from other places in the Word because I want you to see this, is, this doctrine of perseverance, of the certainty of God's salvation, it is not some pet doctrine that you only find in quote-unquote Reformed churches. These are not just the doctrines of Calvinism as though he had invented them. Calvin would be ashamed if he were attributed with that kind of a recognition. He only recognized what was true throughout the Word of God. This is what the Bible teaches. And God is calling his people to recognize those truths. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to give you a sampling. This is by no means comprehensive. I would encourage you, take these verses home and study them yourselves. As you do, the Lord will bless you. He will give you conviction in the truth which will just bring you deeper in your worship for him. John chapter 6 verses 39 and 40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. You see, all who have been given by the Father to the Son, will be raised up at the last day. There's no possibility that anyone will be lost. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand I and my Father are one. 
brethren, you cannot lose your salvation once it's been given you in Christ. And not only that, but nobody else can steal it from you. Nobody else can deceive you so much that you fall away from the faith. You are doubly secure in the hand of Jesus Christ and in the hand of the Father. And no one can pluck anyone out of the hand of God. In John chapter 17, verse 2, the Lord says in His high priestly prayer, as you have given Him, this is a reference to Jesus speaking in the third person of Himself, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. There it is. God has given Christ power to give eternal life to His people. Power is what's required. Christ has been given that authority that He would give us that eternal life. The writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, and for this reason, He, referring to Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All those who are called will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Why? Because Jesus, as the mediator, has died the perfect sacrificial death to pay for all our sins. That's the only thing that would keep us out of heaven. But Christ has given us forgiveness and his righteousness to bring us there. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Stop for a moment. Your salvation is so secure that it is reserved in heaven for you by God. It cannot fade. It cannot be corrupted or or to be destroyed. It is just waiting to be revealed. Notice what, he's, what he says next. Reserved in heaven for you, you, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith. There's the instrument, the means for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You are kept by the very power of God for this salvation. And what's the result of knowing that truth, brothers and sisters? What's the result of everything that we're, we're talking about this morning? Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Yes, the trials are there. They will be there. But beyond the trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that's a reference to the trials, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is there any chance that your faith will not be found to the praise and the glory of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes at the end? No. Why? Because you are being kept by the power of God for that salvation. Thank the Lord. First Peter chapter 5, the end of his first epistle, verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. All the called will receive glory because of God's working. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Just a sampling of some others from Paul's other epistles outside of Romans. I have to show you just Ephesians chapter 1. This is, I mean, you could camp on Ephesians 1 as the only place for this and you would be in good territory. Just look at Ephesians 1 verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice that's past tense. You have been blessed already with all these blessings. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, for what purpose? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That takes us all the way to glorification. 
The reason you were chosen before the foundation of the world is that you would stand before Him holy one day. And nothing will come in the way of His eternal plan. Look to chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the purpose. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show, demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he raise us up past tense? We have been raised. We're in the heavenlies now, spiritually speaking, seated with Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you think that he would raise his people to the position of sitting with Christ in heaven only to cast them down to destruction because they've somehow failed in their performance? That is heresy. The reason he has seated us in the heavenlies is that in the ages to come, in the unforetold future, the eternities of eternities coming, that he might demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. We are his trophies of grace, his examples of his grace and faithfulness. He's not going to let one of those fall. Everyone will bring great glory to his name just as he has purposed it. Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Pretty clear. <clears throat> Colossians 3 verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He doesn't say if you're still believing when he comes, then you will appear with him. No, this is a statement of fact because he knows the certainty of salvation for God's own. And then just one more that ties all these together so wonderfully in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. This is our call to worship. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all there in those two verses. Chosen from the beginning, that's foreknowledge and predestination. But he uses the means in time to bring us there. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit. There's our sanctification. And belief in the truth. There's our justification. Called by our gospel. There's our calling. For the obtaining of the glory of Christ. That's just another way of saying glorification. It's all there. And brothers and sisters, those are only New Testament examples. There are many in the Old Testament as well that say the same thing, to the same effect. Can I just give you one to think about that would really set the stage for further study? God in his creation account created everything out of nothing in six days. And after he had finished, Genesis 1.31 says, Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Question. If God finished what he started in creation, do you think that he will not finish what he starts in recreation, in our redemption? You heard it from Brother Roy this morning in Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. Perfect means whole, complete. Everything he does is whole. He never starts a project that he will not or cannot finish. His way is perfect because it's a direct reflection of his own character. He is perfect. So everything he does is complete. We just don't see it completed to our eyes and our finite pea brains, starting with me first. We'll look at that and say, well, I don't see the end product yet, Lord. 
Where is it? It's coming. Wait for it. It's coming. His work is perfect. Ecclesiastes 3.14. I'm, I'm cheating a little bit by giving you two more verses than I said I would give you, but I can't help myself. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before Him. This is the holy God with whom we have to do. The one who has purposed and acted and continues to act, upholding all things by the word of His power. That is not only a statement related to the physical material universe. He is upholding you and me by the same word of His power. You know what the bottom line is? It's cover, on your cover of your bulletin this morning. It's a really nice quote from C.H. Spurgeon. In our, love, in our Lord's love, we have the best motive for loyalty, the best reason for energy, and the best argument for perseverance. He's not talking about our loyalty to Him. He's talking about His loyalty to us. It's all rooted in His love. His perseverance is rooted in his eternal love. If he's loved you with an everlasting love, he will never stop. That's the idea. So why is the Lord teaching us these truths? Brothers and sisters, I hope you see the point of this is to get us to look away from ourselves and to look to him. Right? It's to see him and his work. And in doing that, he has wonderfully designed that he will cast away our fears and anxieties. This is the remedy for every fear and anxiety. Look to him and his perfect work. Let me just close with this one quote from J.C. Ryle again, because I think he sums this all better than I can. Listen to this. What is the best antidote against the believer's fears and anxieties? What is the most likely to cheer him as he looks forward to the untried future and remembers the weary past? I answer without hesitation, the doctrine of the final perseverance of God's elect. Let him know that God, having begun a good work in him, will never allow it to be overthrown. Let him know that the footsteps of Christ's little flock are all in one direction. They have erred. They have been vexed. They have been tempted. But not one of them has been lost. Let him know that those whom Jesus loves, he loves unto the end. Let him know that he will not suffer the weakest lamb in his flock to perish in the wilderness or the tenderest flower in his garden to wither and die. Let him know that Daniel in the, in the den of lions, the three children in the fiery furnace, Paul in the shipwreck, Noah in the ark, were none of them more cared for and more secure than the believer in Christ. Let him know that he is fenced, walled, protected, guarded by the almighty power of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and can never perish. Let him know that it is not in the power of things present or things to come, of men or of devils, of cares within or troubles without, to separate one single child of God from the love that is in Christ Jesus. There's a principle or an axiom in the book of Isaiah that says the deeper one's roots go, the higher up will be the fruit that this tree makes. The deeper the roots of the tree, the higher the fruitfulness. As we deepen our roots into the word of God and receive what it is he has for us, your fruitfulness will abound. Your worship will abound. And that is the point. That's the application, if you will, <laughs> that God alone can apply to the hearts of his people. May it be so, Lord, with all of us. Let's pray. Father, your word is glorious, and we are just scratching the surface to seeing you. Father, what we need more than anything is to know you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to recognize that your word is forever settled in heaven and to ask you that you would establish your word to your servant and your servants as that which produces reverence for you. 
Teach us the fear of the Lord, Father and Son and Spirit. Cause us to rejoice in you, Lord. May our lives be lived as an outworking of our knowledge of you in holiness, in adoration, in praise and thanksgiving in all circumstances. Father, give your people encouragement, strength to endure temptation, the attacks and the assaults of the devil, which most certainly are within this body and every true body of Christ. Lord, deliver us in every respect. And thank you that you are with us. You are our shield and our defense, our fortress, the one into whom we run to find help, grace in time of need. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.